You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Okay, we are here again, another podcast episode, and this was an amazing episode, one of my favorites we've ever done. We both agreed after Carmel Michael was here in the studio that this was one of the most interesting conversations we've ever had, podcast or otherwise. Yeah, we encouraged her, and she's thought about about uh, writing a book mm-hmm. about about her story. Well, we joked at the end of this episode that we were going to keep her around for another hour recording, and then we probably kept her around for another two hours after we stopped recording (laughs) and just continued to pepper her with questions. She's just, she's had an amazing life and so articulate and reflective. It just, yeah, we didn't want her to leave. And I had known Carmel from the music scene being an incredible songwriter, performer, multiple albums out. And I just knew her as a musician, as most people who were in the music scene knew her. We didn't really know about this past uh, part of her because she she didn't really vocalize it. I think it actually makes her story more powerful to tell nearly 20 years later because... I think there's things that come up in our life that we think after that time passes, maybe it's something that we tell ourselves we should have let go or moved on from. But this was really powerful and and the time was right for her to tell this story. Yeah. And when I said people didn't know about it because she didn't vocalize it, she she had to come to the point in her life where it, it was the right time to say it and she was safe like a, a very traumatic thing she went through. So she she had a, she moved away. She got the the great group of support around her. And yeah, she felt like it was the right time. And it's an amazing story what she, what she tells. And it's, it's sad, obviously very sad that she experienced this abuse and what the, the, the church, the Jehovah Witnesses, how they reacted and it's yeah it's amazing we obviously you're going to get into this we're kind of just touching on the the details here but uh, she dives deep into this story the format in which she tells the story too through filmmaking is something new to her yeah and so i also found that a really brave way to share this part of her past because not only was she opening up in this vulnerable way but doing so in a brand new art form which also takes a lot of courage and I think right now, actually, it would probably be beneficial to some people if they can go watch this 11-minute documentary and read the letter, which are both referenced multiple times in this podcast episode. So if you're not driving, maybe if you're driving, whip out your phone and watch the video <laughs> anyway. But uh, pause this and go to carmelmichael.com, C-A-R-M-E-L-M-I-K-O-L. You got it. Uh, dot Calm, I believe. I'm and the link is in the show notes. Yeah. You can just scroll down and, and click on the link and the film is there included separately. And it's a, an 11 minute film. So 
I agree. It would be worth watching that to give a, an overview of what a lot of the conversation is about. Yeah. But even then, you'll still benefit. Yeah, you I don't think. have to. But it is, you get to see her work and it's it's cool. It's, uh, yeah, it, it will put some context to things, but you'll understand this either way. I asked Carmel after, who, and, and I was a little shy to ask her this, but I said, who is Jehovah? Yeah. Because it's one of those common terms or common religions that you hear, but may never have asked the most basic of question. And, and we cover a lot of the history of the religion and the structure of it, but... I found myself after like, wait a minute, like, who is this? And she explained that it was like God's name the ultimately name, yeah, that they use for God. They use. So they it's kind of like Bobby, but Jehovah. I call him Bernie. Yeah, that works. Yeah. We can call he or she whatever we choose. But yeah. uh, for anyone who may have also been wondering, I hope that that is, <laughs> is helpful. And yeah, this it was just, she's, very well spoken, very smart, very talented, a lot of life experience. Um, her family's interesting, so yeah, just a great chat. We're encouraging the book for selfish reasons, yeah. We, write the book, Carmel. Yeah, we want a little bit more, please. Yeah, <laughs> and we're going to be playing one of her songs at the end of this episode yes. because she is, as you mentioned, a talented singer songwriter. Yep. And while she has lots of other creative expressions, this is uh. Definitely one that we want to highlight as part of her past, present, and future. And she talks about working on a new album as well. So you'll be able to hear that single at the end of this episode. Uh, yeah, she sent us a song called When It's Time to Go. So this one, I'm not sure what year this one is from. Let me just take a quick look. It's from her last album. Okay. Yeah. From her last album, When It's Time to Go. Carmel Michael. And yeah, amazing chat, amazing person. Check it out right now, folks. Can't wait to listen again. <laughs> yeah, it's never, it's happened, yeah, once in yeah. 93 episodes where it just, oh my God, you've done 93. Yeah. That's so amazing. Oh, yeah. Thank so you. Yeah. That's like a huge accomplishment and commitment. And I just, wow. You know, and it's also the only creative project that we've done <laughs> where there is zero attachment to outcome or Ugh. income or other things that often come up when we're yeah. making work. Yeah. I don't yep. know if you have, I know that your <laughs> podcast was more so attached to a academics. So yeah. Maybe that was part of it, but did you have that same experience? Totally. It was like, for me, it was super exploratory. Like it was, oh my God, I'm going to try to do this thing I've never done that kind of combines like all the skills that I have so far in life and mm. is scary. And it was very like, um, to me, it felt like making a song or like mm. every episode to me because it was like, because it was extremely edited like all the conversations and I wrote music for each episode and yeah. like it was very, very like curated. It's a piece of art almost. Yeah. yeah. So it was like a challenge every time. And then there was like the pre-research and then how do I turn it into a story? So yeah, it felt like a whole project every single episode, Yeah, which I, I liked. The same might could be said for any art form, but podcasting has so few rules yeah as far as length or guests right? subject matter do you have an intro do you make your own song for yeah. everyone like this is 
kind of across the board, there's that flexibility to it, which is fun, too. The no rules thing was really nice. I was like, wait, I can just do like I was kind of making the podcast that I wanted to listen to at mm -hmm. the time. Yeah. Right. Like it was about the books I was reading and like the things that I was interested in exploring. And it was like the style, like I wanted something that sounded as beautiful as the ideas it was saying. And I failed epically in many of them. Like I should have had help like mixing in, like mastering the final things, but like I didn't. I learned as I went. <laughs> that's that's every creative form or creative yeah. output. You 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 have to put some 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 miles in of learning and figuring it out. And yeah, yeah. Your, your first song you ever wrote, probably not your best song. Oh my God, no. I was, I was six years old and it yeah. was not my best song. <laughs> Imagine if it was, It though. was still a sad song about heartbreak, though. Oh. <laughs> it was called When You Left. Oh my God. I, don't, I know this because I literally have them all still. That's incredible. <laughs> so maybe not six-year-old you song, <laughs> no. but... It's like what I thought songs were supposed to be about. Like, I was like, oh, you're supposed to sing about someone who leaves you. Got yeah. it. <laughs> this checks. A lot of songs are about, so. Do you approach songwriting in the same headspace as the podcast in that it's the song that you want to hear? Oh, good question. Mm, no, I never would. I mean, I wish. I just don't think I've ever accomplished that. I just write the song that is like literally... <laughs> <laughs> to me, songwriting often just feels like a biological imperative. Like you feel it. It's like in your throat. You have to say that thing. And then you go back and try and make it better after. The but the first draft is like, you. I have no idea why I wrote that song today, you know. And then usually I can be like, oh, right, because I was thinking about that. Or there's a specific story. But it's like almost uncontrolled. It's like a physical response it feels like almost when you write a song and it comes to fruition do you then have a vision of how that's going to sound when it's actually recorded often but and are you chasing that um do you know what i think i really really focus on like the lyric and melody when i'm writing yeah and then it's not till later because the way i make albums it's usually a huge mix of like a brand new song I wrote last week yeah. and then song I've had for 10 years trying to find yeah. a home. And so it's usually what kind of record do I want to make and which songs fit into that sound. Mm -hmm. But when I'm writing, I actually don't really think about the sound. I think about like the story of the song or like the feeling I'm trying to capture. And it, I realized it could probably produce 10 different ways. Most songs, mm -hmm. could, you know, they could go a lot of different ways. So I don't think about it. I think more like, how can I just like strip out any possible bullshit from this writing mm. <laughs> as I'm going and like make it as true as possible and not kid myself because there's so much like ego involved. I feel like with the creative process yeah. where you're like, is it good? I have to make it good. And it's like, you don't know if it's ever good. You have to make it true. <laughs> yeah. The truth is at the end of the day the only thing that matters and if people can relate to it. Yeah. I think totally. is it good is the top question of the <gasps> arts period. Right? Is it like something should be called is it good and then we can all just point and laugh at it because yeah. it's a ridiculous question. Because, like, we don't want to suck. Like, listen, I have real like I have been literally writing songs since I was 6 years old. Mm. So it's like that is a long time to put time into that. Of course, you want to be good at it. But what you realize, at least what I realize is like, I actually don't control that. I just control how often I show up to the practice of it, how many bad songs I write. Basically, mm -hmm. it's a ratio. It's like 
If I show up to write often enough, I'm going to write tons of bad songs. And that's totally fine because if I'm doing it often enough, really good ones will come. And then it kind of takes the pressure off of like having to do good work. And you realize like you have to do the work and then like some of it will be good and some of it will be bad. And you can figure that out later. You know, it's just like, who cares? It's excellent advice. <laughs> it's hard to do, I know. It's I I believe you. And I've heard other people in some version share similar words. I have a very difficult time really mm. practicing them. Yeah. Is that something that you have in the past struggled with and have found peace with? I think I found peace with it with songwriting because it's my most aged craft form like Mm. i've been doing it the longest and i actually really believe deeply that i will never run out of songs at this point like i've had enough of life happen that i'm like i write it's always going to happen i don't need to worry about it and i know how to do it like i feel confident in how to write a song i don't feel confident everyone's going to be good but Mm. i don't mind because i feel like there's a well of it and I'm curious always about what the next one will be. But like other forms of work that I do, like I write short stories and I've been writing scripts. And because those are less practiced or honed skills, I have a lot more of that. Like, oh, my God, is this whole thing terrible? Did I just waste a whole day? Like, is any people are going to laugh at me? Like, I can't submit this. Like that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Because I just don't know how to do it as much. Who do you create for? Is it for yourself or are you thinking of the the audience at the 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 end of the line? Um I definitely do think of an audience, but ultimately like if I'm not satisfied with how a song is written or sounds, like I'm still the ultimate sort of like yes or no. Yeah. So You're the boss. Yeah. Like I can't put something on an album if I think, oh, people will find that fun and tap their toe to it. But I think it's a shitty song. I still won't put it on there. Yeah. yeah. So I think like I do think of an audience because for me, why create something that is external to you if you're not wanting to connect? Like that's the whole point is to connect and know we're not alone in having this feeling. Mm-hmm. If I didn't care about that, then I would just have these thoughts in my head and never write them down or never make an album. And that would be okay. There's probably lots of people who do that. Um, But yeah, it is about connecting and feeling like we are not solo in the universe. (laughs) And so I do think about the audience. And I often, because I write, I often worry that I write like too emotionally and that some people couldn't handle it. So I think kind of think about it in that way. Does your live show change how you potentially craft a song because i know i know for me Mm. it started to more recently than ever because i'm like the obviously i want to create an awesome recording that people are going to enjoy something awesome yeah not (laughs) even just good awesome (laughs) but i'm like okay i i'm the rock shows we're playing are pretty high energy so i'm not going to put three ballads on a new album because yeah we're going to be putting in these more high energy songs into our set where people are dancing and and moving. So I can still write those ballads and they can still go on to albums, but it doesn't always make sense if we're realizing our audience at, at live shows in particular are going to be experiencing it in a different way. 
I think that the genre you work in has a lot more pressure in that way. Like, I've actually struggled with that my whole music career is trying to have songs in a set that, like, have a nice, you know, trajectory of a set and give people more than just one type of feeling. Um, I struggle with that because where I kind of sit naturally is in, like, ballad storytelling song sort of like slower tempo um and so in the genre that i work in which is more like song singer songwriter you're kind of allowed to do that more anyway because people don't come to my show to dance right they come to like sit there drink and be sad together yeah (laughs) so i and i know how to deliver that i hope you have merch with a tagline (laughs) on it but i think where like how i've negotiated that is in is in what i say in between the songs and how I craft the set list itself so that I know that like the songs aren't the only way of me connecting and I can like tell stories and hopefully tell some jokes in between that lightens the mood. But like, it is a problem for me and it's, it gets easier when I have a full band playing because then we can make everything more dynamic. I'm super um, concerned and think a lot about the dynamic and the shape of the set, but for sure in like, the genre that I'm working in, I actually indulge. I allow myself to indulge more in the like slower, sadder side of, yeah. of mm-hmm. art because I can. And actually, I would say like with this album that I'm just finishing up, it's the first time that I just was like, fuck it, this is what I do. Yeah. And this is actually what I do really well. And I'm not going to apologize or worry. Like this is actually the purest form of what I do. And I'm going to have faith that whoever needs it will come and find it. And connect yeah. with it. And then if they want a day where they're having like a drive down the highway, have a fun song, there's so many amazing of your records they can listen to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like <laughs> Well, I think I think you you pour your your heart and soul and all your knowledge that you've gained over the last part of your life into a song and you're meticulous about every detail and you've got that experience under your belt and you're reading books and you're doing all the things to be at your best. Like that will find an audience. You yeah. don't have to be like, okay, this person, when I go play this show in Berwick, are these people going to like, like yeah. those things just seem like, yeah. If, if, if you pour yourself into it, the, the audience will find it. I like, I if do. you build it, they will come. I right? actually really believe that. And I also think that it's very I'm kind of aware, hyper aware of how art can be narcissistic if you're not careful. In fact, it kind of is anyway. Like, let's just yeah. be honest. Like, it art is sort of narcissistic by its nature in that you're. it's like you're internally exploring yourself and you're trying to bring some representation of that outwardly. And so I actually think, like, I have a huge respect and kind of like need to like honor all the people in the audience like anyone who comes in is like i'm gonna pay attention to you for seven minutes 45 minutes two hours whatever that's like incredible that someone would do that so i think it's like really important to be aware and like give your audience an experience like show up with everything you have and like be practiced and not act like it's no big deal like i don't like it when people perform flippantly like they're too cool for me as an audience member, like, I don't like that. I'm like, I think it's so incredible that we're sharing this together. And like, I owe you something because I'm the one up on stage. Mm. And so I think like, that's sort of where my version of what you're saying is like making sure you have enough fun songs that your audience wants to dance to or like enough variety. For me, it shows up with that idea of just like, 
giving each audience member dignity and like honoring that they're showing up for you. Yeah. And like we have a responsibility. We have the mic in front of us, you know? I find it very liberating as a fellow artist to hear you describe it being okay that this is what I connect to or what I resonate with or what I'm good at. Going mm. back to that, like writing sad songs because there are people that feel sad. I sometimes yeah. feel that pressure of I'm not supposed to be sad or I'm not supposed mm. to be anxious or, you know, these are emotions within myself that are, quote, bad or that I'm mm. meant to heal and therefore... Maybe my art should be the vessel towards that, which would mean it's got to look pretty. It's got to look excited and active. And you want for people as well to feel uplifted and positive. So there's a little bit of this weird dichotomy of I don't feel this way, but I think this is the art I'm supposed to make so that other people don't feel this way. Mm -hmm. But there's something just really pure and honest about saying like, but I'm good at making the sad stuff. Mm -hmm. And that really serves a purpose. Well, I also think that like, every artist is also an audience member of other people's art, right? Yeah. So I always, as an audience member, I'm like voracious about like reading and watching films and TV and listening to music. And like the thing that makes my life is when you connect to this, like someone just does the feeling, like they reflect you back to yourself and you're just like, oh, thank God. Like I just needed to know that I wasn't crazy or I needed to know that like that weird thing I was super embarrassed and anxious about, like, Someone else did that and they put it in a funny scene in a TV show. Yeah. Like, yeah. Or they wrote the saddest song ever and I cry while I'm in my car and like, thank you, I feel better. And yes. so I don't know, like to me, that's really incredible if you can do that. And like whether it's joy that makes me dance around my kitchen or sadness that makes me cry, I'm like very grateful to whoever made the thing that made me do that. You know, it's an artist's responsibility to make sense of our emotions. Right. <laughs> you had asked me, so Mike and I do kind of a year end reflection using a document with questions. And, mm. you know, it's one of these exercises we do for, for New Year's. And as an outcome of having a discussion about what some of those answers were, I think you asked me something like, um, do you consider yourself a jealous person or do you feel jealous naturally? Like that could be of someone else's success. It could that can look like lots of things. Jealousy. And I thought, well, I don't think I would call myself any one singular emotion, mm. you know, insert that emotion of a person. Am I just sad? Am I just jealous? Am I just happy? No, I'm all of those things, which I think gives reason for somebody to be the artist that makes work that's representative of jealousy or <laughs> yeah. sadness or any any emotion that we as humans yeah. just, of course, we're going to feel all those things. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine if artists were supposed to be better people than anyone else? Like, mm. <laughs> like we and we laughed. <laughs> like we are not better. We're not smarter, really. Like we're not any different. We're like we're doing life exactly the same way. For me, and this is totally just my take on it, but like, I think the only thing that makes me in any way different than someone who doesn't do creative or artistic work is that like I process my life through creating something out of it. And just not everyone else does. Like some people go to the gym instead, you know, or they like, I don't know, bake. Like everyone has some way of processing emotions that they go through in life. And for me, it's like writing and music and creating something tangible out of it. And that's like, to me, it's just almost like a functional difference. Yes, it also means that I'm like a little bit more sensitive and attuned to the world in maybe a slightly different way. Because I think that that... um 
It's art, necessary. Yeah, like art is like this two-way thing where you have to be very observant and see and watch and feel everything mm-hmm. maybe a bit more than the typical human so that you can create out of it. But like, I don't think it's like some mystical thing. Like, I just think it's it's a bit more functional and practical than maybe we think of it. Yeah. And I'm grateful that... Um, I don't know why I was born that way and maybe saw mm-hmm. a little bit of it modeled as a kid growing up. My dad was like um, not professional, but he wrote songs when I was a yeah. kid. And that's kind of where I learned. Like to me, it was just normal. I kind of thought everyone did that, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so maybe that's part of why I do it. But like the pressure to be wiser or smarter or more put together than anyone else, I think can be detrimental to our work. Because actually what we need to be is like just more vulnerable. And more willing to say embarrassing, scary, difficult things, you know? Your creative expression is multimedia. Mm. Do you call yourself an artist or a storyteller? Um, gosh, dare I? An artistic storyteller. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I've explored different forms. I'm kind of always looking for different ways to tell a story. I guess I call myself an artist because I don't know in the future, like, what it will look like. I know that my skill doesn't sit in the realm of, like, visual as much as it does sort of, like, written or sound, kind of. Um, Even as I've been exploring film, I see that the way I tell stories is still more compositionally from, like, a storytelling aspect than a visual one right Mm. so it's been interesting to learn that about myself um yeah and speaking of film you recently put out your your first short film yeah thank you it's called apostate um a very loaded term that lots of people actually don't know what it means (laughs) so i could maybe we looked it up yeah Yeah, we we did have to look (laughs) or i did at least (laughs) um yeah so it is about my experience growing up as one of jehovah's witnesses Um, which is like a fundamentalist Christian religion Um, and then experiencing abuse as a younger adult. And then my process of sort of leaving that behind. And it chronicles me looking back on that because I left. I haven't been an active um, Jehovah's Witness for like almost 20 years. Um, But I had also never officially like severed my like association with that religion. And so this film was telling the story officially being like i'm not that and then also kind of doing a form of activism around some of my experiences and so apostate sort of defines that that gesture of leaving yeah exactly if you look up apostate in the dictionary it basically just means someone who like leaves a belief system or religion like it's somewhat neutral like you just stop doing or being part of a group but in the witness world um apostate actually has a much heavier connotation An apostate is someone who not only like leaves the religion by choice but is also sort of like considered a dangerous person to be avoided or shunned like someone who basically is trying to work against the religion Mm. themselves or the leadership of the religion and that's actually like it's kind of considered one of the worst things you can do Like when you're raised as a Jehovah's Witness, like if someone's an apostate, that's like the worst. And so I purposely named the documentary that way to kind of like reclaim that word as being an empowering thing where someone can actually just choose to be like, I don't believe that anymore. And it's cool. Rather than it being like, you're evil, you're dangerous, you know, Mm. you're like a wolf among sheep, that type of thing. Um, And I just wanted to kind of you know, get rid of the power of that word for myself because it's part of the reason why I didn't 
tell my story for so long and like just kind of kept it secret was I didn't want to be labeled as that because it still scared me, even though I don't believe in any of that anymore. And you were you were born a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah. So my or your parents were my parents chose to become Jehovah's Witnesses, actually, um, when they were like they were married, they were young, maybe mid 20s. Yeah. Um, and so I don't really have like a long history of the religion in my family. But if you are born into a witness family, you are a witness. Yeah. Like you are it's sort of expected that you just will be and you're raised a certain way. And then they actually don't do infant baptism. So you you have to be I was like 12, 13 when I got baptized. Mm. You have to like take a test and answer questions and study and you have to prove like supposedly that you know what the beliefs are Mm. and that you're going to dedicate your whole life to God and to living this life. And I did that at the age of 12, which Mm. obviously I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, And, but then once you're baptized, you are in forever. And the only way to leave is either to do something against the moral codes and they will do what's called disfellowshipping, which is a form of shunning. So they like push you out Mm. or you can do what's called disassociation where you write a formal letter and you say like, I no longer am going to be a witness. And the the consequences are very similar that like the community in your family will then likely shun you or you won't have that community anymore. Mm. So technically what I do in my film is a disassociation letter where I officially say I'm no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses. It's just kind of weirder for me because I actually haven't been one for so many yeah. years right. that it was kind of a formality that I did mm-hmm. sort of as a statement. You talked about your leaving or perhaps the way of you leaving the religion, them looking at you as a dangerous mm. member of society. Is that true for anyone that is not a formal member? Like, would Mike and I also be included in that identity? Mm. Yeah, that's such a great question. I think, like, <laughs> I kind of could give you, like, a Jehovah's Witness 101 to sort of help answer yeah. that. Let's do that. And I, yeah. I said before we started recording, the the average person's perception of uh, someone who's a Jehovah's Witness is just the the door. They knock on your door when you don't want someone to knock on your door. And yeah. they're always very nice, but uh, they keep coming back. Yeah, we, we but there's we, obviously more to it. There's obviously more to it, and I I would love to, and I think our listeners certainly would as well to get the one on one. Okay, let me let me see if I can do this in a concise way. <laughs> um, so the basic belief system of Jehovah's Witnesses: first of all, they are Christian. They take they follow the Christian Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, okay. and they're kind of what I would call biblical literalists in other words most of what is in the bible they like take it literally Mm -hmm. so for example um the bible says that there is an armageddon coming like a big end of the world event and they believe that that's happening Mm -hmm. basic world structure is that we are all living in what's called the last days the end of the system in which we all live and that jehovah's witnesses are the only true religion in the world and their job the reason they go and knock on everyone's door is to go and warn as many people as possible that this cataclysmic Armageddon is coming and then to get them to become Jehovah's Witnesses so that they can survive that because they believe that the world is going to end by all of the governments on earth turning against all religion and a giant war is going to happen in which God will come down and destroy all earthly governments all other religions and all evil people. 
and that God's people or Jehovah's Witnesses will be the only survivors. They're going to then, most of them will stay on earth. They're not all going to go to heaven like most Christians believe. They'll stay on earth. Um, former witnesses um, or faithful people of old will be resurrected, come back to life, and they're going to turn the earth into a paradise, live forever, never die again. It will like go back to the Garden of Eden. Okay. Okay, let's just pause because that's a lot. <laughs> that is a lot, yeah. <laughs> How, so... Where did they get that from? <laughs> that's that's yeah. my question. Because if they're following the Bible, I uh, mm -hmm. don't think it says that in the Bible. It, like, it does say this in the Bible. Okay. Like, it does say <laughs> things like this. It, what's really interesting is, like, as a Jehovah's Witnesses, Witness, you have to read the whole Bible once a year. Like, there's, it's a very, like, studious religion. It's not, this, it's not just like you go to church on Sunday. There's yeah. multiple meetings throughout the week, and there's this whole program of learning that is produced and published by the headquarters of the organization. Mm -hmm. And it's like publications. It's almost like school. Like you have assignments every week and you have to read a section of the Bible and you prepare and you mm. discuss it. Um, and so like I've read the whole Bible like a bunch of times because yeah. we had to as a kid. I don't remember everything about it, but yeah. absolutely there is, an, you know, the last days that term is in the Bible. Yeah. Armageddon is coming. Only God's few chosen people will be saved. In the Bible, it talks about 144,000 people that will go to heaven and the rest remaining to make this paradise earth. It's just that most Christian religions interpret that to mean like an afterlife in heaven. Yeah. And witnesses don't. Like they actually think it means like Garden of Eden will be restored. Mm. And there are the term resurrection is in the Bible, but most people interpret that as like the afterlife. Whereas they interpret it as really happening. And and one of the reasons why being a witness is so intense is that they really believe this end giant war thing is coming. And so if you're not a witness, you're the rest of the world who aren't witnesses are called worldly. So you two are worldly. <laughs> okay. And if I was a current witness, it would be kind of dangerous for me to be friends with you. Okay. Which is why as a kid... We only hung out with other witnesses. We didn't do extracurricular activities at school. We couldn't be in like sports and stuff like that. Uh. We didn't celebrate any holidays, birthdays, because it was all about like being close and safe and isolated within witness community, which is one of the reasons why the belief system and the policies can be dangerous for some people, because especially if you're born into it, this is all you know. Like from the time I was a little kid, they have special books made for little kids to teach them the Bible stories, yeah. teach them about Satan, the devil who runs the world. And supposedly you guys, by the way, mm -hmm. he's controlling your life. Okay. Um, but as long as you're a witness, you have like this straight line to God and you're going to be safe. It's very classic kind of like cult-ish yeah. Cult adjacent. I would agree. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> techniques for isolating and everything's life or death. Do you know when these ideas were, when was the religion formed? Um, so late 1800s, uh, a, a dude in the US, it was during, I think they called the Great Awakening. So like in the late 1800s, there was a bunch of sort of revivalist Christian yeah. um, religions formed, like Seventh-day Adventists and all that. Like it all kind of came around the same time. That's also when Jehovah's Witnesses started. Okay. 
And really the big difference, the thing that differentiated them even back then was the preaching. They like really took the whole like preaching thing seriously and it mm-hmm. became like their brand, it's their vibe. Yeah. <laughs> How many active Jehovah's Witnesses are there on on earth? Right now there's between eight and nine million. Is that many? It's, okay. It's like pretty big and yeah. it's global, super yeah. global. Um, they have like, it's very weird. They have like translated their publications and their Bible into like hundreds of languages. They even like invented a new way of like printing and translating that like other publishing people started uh, using. Like people don't realize how much they actually publish. Yeah. So when like people are knocking your door, they usually have like these magazines to give you. Yeah. But witnesses also have every year a new book or something that they study. Yeah. There's like, they now of course have a website and they have a whole broadcasting page on their website where they have like newsroom quality vibe of like dudes preaching basically. Yeah. And it is, by the way, it is all dudes. So that's another core. Yeah. Core yeah we'll, we'll get to all that for sure. <laughs> uh, I got a couple more questions about uh, just this, their, their beliefs. Uh, so this war happens mm. between governments and religions or. So the concept, and this comes from like the book of revelations and all this really like symbolic prophetic language that they've decided how to interpret it. So the concept is that, governments will turn against religion realizing that religion causes a lot of problems in the world which let's be fair pretty accurate on that part Um, but um the idea is that yeah governments will actually turn against religions and what that means is they'll say like you can't worship anymore so when i was a kid and they still do this i remember they would publish these pictures where it would be like these dark clad sort of policemen kind of like Gestapo figure folks coming and like pulling families out of their house. And witnesses are going to be the only ones who say like, no, I refuse to give up my faith. We're going to be the only last faithful ones. And then right before all the witnesses are also destroyed, that's when God and his angels will step in, Okay. then destroy all the governments and the religions. So he'll kind of be like, hold up. Okay. You guys all proved yourselves faithful. I'm here to save the day. Yeah. Is there a tension with government? Like, would that community pay taxes and vote and participate mm. in law? And or yeah. is it an anti-government? Um, it's they believe the whole pay Caesar things to Caesar thing, which the Bible says. So they do pay taxes very meticulously. But however, witnesses do not go to war. So like, I knew lots of people when I was a kid who like had been in jail because. They didn't go to Vietnam and they were conscientious, conscientious objectors. Yeah. Um, there are people who are right now, witnesses were put into concentration camps in World War II, you know, from um, the Nazis because they wouldn't stop. You know, they were just another group of people who were considered different. Yeah. And like right now, like in parts of Russia, there are witnesses who are in prison because mm. in places where like religion isn't allowed they do yeah. keep worshiping. So there's like, there's actually some real world true historical facts that kind of like help support this lore that they have for the future. Um, basically the concept of witnesses is to kind of flit, fly below the radar. Witnesses do not vote. That's the one thing. So they don't participate in world government mm. because they believe in a theocracy, a yes. God-led government, right? Yeah. So the first time I voted, I was like in my late twenties and it felt like, like a kind of scary thing, uh, but it also felt like amazing that yeah. I could do yes. it. Um, because they don't believe that this world is 
is the real world that's going to exist. So they don't invest in it, really. Like, the thing that they do now as an act of service is to go preach and hopefully help people. They do help in, like, um, you know, if a disaster strikes, they help witnesses in a country where there's a major flood. They'll also help others. But they aren't really a charity organization in the way that other Christian organizations are. Mm. This hearing you describe the background to us, we might kind of giggle about it or it mm. feels far fetched. Yet there are any number of be it religious stories or scientific theories from simulation theory. Like mm-hmm. we're in a big simulation that I am kind of like, yeah, maybe, maybe yeah. that's possible. And so yeah. hearing this background, it's like maybe this isn't something I align to personally, but it's you can certainly understand how they have grown yeah. under that ideology. Now, we're going to get into there's unethical parts of this, yeah. which would be kind of the determining factor of do you want to belong here? Mm-hmm. But just as a story, like, yes, to some, I'm sure it sounds a bit a bit wild. I think humans need stories. But yeah, it's Back no different than even. any other story like, that yeah. we buy well, into. A core part of the story is that it does answer a lot. Like, what is one of the biggest questions that we grapple with as humans one of it is like why the hell are we so terrible and why do we suffer and why is world the world so awful and why do we die and why is life so hard you know like and it and witnesses have a very clear answer to that and it's that they believe that right now satan the devil is running the world and he's making it like that and that in this future when armageddon happens and god comes in and saves it that will end it and there's not going to be death or disease or illness or wars in that you know, paradise that they're going to create. So like, it's actually extremely like sort of fundamental when you think about like, there's a lot of crazy details to it, but like ultimately it's a way of being like, Hey, don't worry. There's a hope for the future. Yes. And if you actually believe that or believe in any religion and the, the end result, like that would be incredibly liberating. I think so. I mean, one of the ongoing sort of conflicts and conversations I have with my own mother, who is a very devout and active witness, yeah. is this this question of, like, belief. You know, she says, like, I really believe this. And, and I say to her, I'm so grateful that you have something that you believe that gives you comfort. Mm-hmm. You know, like... My family has gone through a lot of really hard things and loss. And like, I'm glad she has that. Yeah. It doesn't work for me. But like, if it was just that, and I think maybe this is where we get into the rest of the story is like, yeah. if it was just a matter of like, my mom chooses to believe and now I'm an adult and I don't choose to believe. Yeah. That would be fine. Yeah. But it's unfortunately much more complicated than that. So. I want to get into your experience, your personal experience with this. I first want to ask, was there a moment in your childhood that you were made aware that there was another world out there? Like, was it that level Mm. of isolation that you maybe weren't exposed to different religions or academics or whatever the case Mm. might be? Like, do you remember that time in your childhood that you were like, wait a minute, I'm part of this, not part of that? I think that is ever present because... Witnesses actually do go to like public school. Most of them, like I went to normal public school. Okay. Um, there are some who get homeschooled, but it's not really the norm. So you're actually from the very beginning, you're conditioned into this concept that you're a special group living in a dangerous world. And they literally call it the world or worldly people. And you're in what's called the truth. 
So it's mm. from the beginning, it was a dichotomy of these two spaces. Okay. Mm. So you, you kind of always knew then that always. there was this, I see. Yeah. And like, as you grow up and become like a teenager, it becomes even like, the stakes get higher because, you know, teenagers want to do stuff like yeah. drink and make out with each other and try things and like listen to whatever music they want to. And so as you get older, there's constantly things that are defined as worldly and you're not supposed to do and things that are OK for you to do. When and how did you meet your former husband? Um, so he was like among the group of witnesses in the same congregation that I went to, like sort of among like a crew of young people who all hung out. Okay. Yeah. And you, so would you do a Sunday service? Is that part yeah. of the practice? Like, Okay. Yeah. So basically my whole life growing up, it was Sunday morning, a two hour thing. On Saturdays, you would do the door to door work. So like most of the time when you're knocking on people's doors, it's usually like a, often a Saturday morning. And then there was also a Tuesday night and a Thursday night hour to two hour like gathering or Bible study. Okay. So it was kind of like three, lot, yeah. three and a half, four days a week. Dedicated a bunch. Right. Yeah. And there was also like um, assignments you'd have to do. And like it was it's kind of like a full time job. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Your film outlines. Some, I would imagine, some of the challenges, some of the unethical aspects of this, the, ex the personal experience that you had with abuse and the patriarchy. Did you know that that was part of your, like, was that your understanding of the religion mm. from a young age and entering a marriage? So witnesses um, are kind of traditional patriarchal in that the organization itself is led by a group of eight men who are headquartered in New York. Um, they have like a literal headquarters called Bethel. And that's where like everything's published and written and sort of all of the doctrine and policy is made. And then in every single congregation or like Kingdom Hall, which you may have seen around, there's always a Kingdom mm -hmm. Hall in most towns. Yeah. Um, in that Kingdom Hall, there's a structure of elders who are like a group of men who sort of run that congregation. Um, and it's only men who can be in any form of leadership. So there's no such thing as like a female pastor or something, um, as in many other religions. So growing up, I always knew, because you see it all around you, that like there's only a man who goes up to the podium and speaks and does the talks. Mm -hmm. There's only a man who prays. Um, we would see pictures of what's called the governing body. That's the eight men who run the organization. And there would be pictures of them in the publication. You'd know their names. And it was all men. And even at home, um, you would always pray before a meal. And if there was a man or a boy in the room, only a man could give the prayer. If it was just like me and my mom, then she could pray. But if there was another man, she would have to cover her head if she was going to pray. So like... Obviously, I didn't have the language that I have for it now mm -hmm. that I like, you know, studied women's literature for two years. Yeah. But like, um, yes, like that was just sort of accepted. And it was also talked about a lot. Like there would be articles and talks about how this is how God has set up the organization, that he speaks through these men and that women are supposed to follow the Bible and be submissive and be in support of that whole uh, structure. So there's a bunch of dudes in New York that are like, I'm going to make up the rules where dudes get to benefit from everything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And they also have like this sort of, it's kind of like a secret line of communication, like men who become elders. It's a bit of a status thing. It means you're like a very good witness and you're an exemplary sort of servant of God. Um, they also get 
communication directly from the headquarters that other people don't see. So no women would be able to see the letters they get. There's a special, it's called Elder's Book, which has like the rules of how you handle situations like what I experienced or if someone does something wrong. I'm doing air quotes. I realize no one can see that. <laughs> um, yeah, so there is like, it's extremely structured and it's very open. Like it's not covertly patriarchal. It is like, yeah. yes, this is how it is and this is how it should be because in the Bible it says this. And it does say it like this is kind mm -hmm. of how the structure was made um, in like if you look up, you know, how the Apostle Paul talked about the first congregation of Christians. This is how it was structured. So that's how they do it. So entering a, entering your marriage, did, were there things that you kind of assumed would be the case? Or um, what, were, what, what came as a surprise and whatnot, perhaps is a better way of mm -hmm. asking that. I think like, so first of all, many witnesses get married super young because another thing like premarital sex is not allowed. So it kind of like forces people into getting married very yeah. young and it's very common. Yeah. Um, and before you get married, you actually study this like family book with a an elder. So me and the person I was with, as we were like engaged, we would go once a week to this elder's house and for like an hour we would like talk about certain scriptures and we'd follow this book. And it basically laid out like the role of a wife and the role of a husband and how to have like a successful, happy marriage. You know, like there there is like a concept that you can have a happy family. Like they do want you to be happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also the roles were very specific there. So like I was, let's say, um, I was 21 when I got married. So I was maybe 20 when this was going on. And um, it wasn't, nothing to me in that book was surprising because I'd heard that my whole life. And I had right. seen that modeled by my parents and many other, you know, everyone. And theoretically, it should be okay because, as my mother always reminds me, you know, the concept is that yes, the man is the head of the family and yes, the man has ultimate authority, but they are supposed to be kind and loving. And so in some mm. ways it puts responsibility on the man to like take care of the family, you know, physically, spiritually, financially, all those things. And then the woman is supposed to be like an active part of life, but just doesn't make final decisions, has to listen ultimately to what the final decision of the man is. And absolutely witnesses do not condone violence against women. Like for sure they don't. I had also grown up hearing like how important it was for like a man to be loving like, as I'm saying this now, years later, the whole thing makes me want to throw up just the concept of it, right? Yeah. But mm -hmm. at the time, like, that's just, that was normal life to me. Mm -hmm. Of like, course. That's always, that's what I knew. And there was no reason for me to question it, you know? Did you, were you in love? Like, did you get to choose your partner? Yes, I totally fell in love. Like, any normal person would mm -hmm. fall in love. Mm -hmm. um, and I would also now be able to look back and identify things like, love bombing and really dangerous patterns you know during our engagement that at the time i would not have known like so there's like there's witnesses getting married and then there's grooming for an abusive relationship and unfortunately both things happened to me not every mm -hmm. witness couple who gets married experiences what i right. did and also not every witness man is an abusive man like i think it's important to obviously say yeah. that um but what i will say is that because you have this structure First of all, the hierarchy of the man having authority. And because you also only have male authority in all of the congregations, if someone is abusive, then someone in my position has way fewer options 
than someone who is in a more like liberal and sort of equitable space. And not only that, there are very serious rules around marriage and divorce that limit being able to escape an abusive marriage if you do end up in it as a witness. And abuse isn't one of the reasons that you can be divorced. Yeah. And I mean, that comes straight from the Bible. Like it literally says basically that adultery or like basically having sex with someone else is the only reason you can break a marriage. And so abuse is not like you can separate and you could get like what's called a legal divorce. But in God's eyes, you are still married. And in the congregation's eyes and in the eyes of the elder, the priority is to stay married because you've been married before God. And that's it. Like you made this promise. And it it is true. Like they literally can't say that it's okay to get a divorce for being abused because in the Bible, it doesn't say that. And they're literalists. Mm. And so you end up in this like really dangerous situation where you're encouraged to stay in a violent situation, which is what happened to me. And um, beyond like just the physical violence is really if I can just like swear here, like the mental fuckery of it. Yes. Like if you are in years, like I was in a four year deeply emotionally, physically, financially abusive relationship. So I was already like, I, and I was like in my young twenties. So I was like a broken person, like in every way already. Mm. And then when I did finally go to try and get help for it a couple years after, you know, enduring it for a while, all the elders could really do is say, like, listen, be more submissive, like be a better Christian wife. And yes, he needs to stop being violent. But for you, just like hold in there, you know, like stay. And and they didn't say anything to him. Like he would go and see them on his own sometimes, but it was like warmth and encouraging. It wasn't like, wow, like you literally need to stop doing yeah. this. Like, yes, they don't condone violence, but it wasn't like they were like, listen. Like, if someone walked up to me today and was like, I'm experiencing this, the number one thing I would say is like, how can I help you get safe? And then we will like work on, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, decision. Obviously, it's so complicated, people who are in abusive relationships. I don't think that there's any right way that the elders could have counseled me because they are not the people who should be doing it. Like, Mm -hmm. to become an elder in a witness congregation There are no qualifications other than ones that are considered like spiritual. In other words, do you come to meetings a lot? Do you do all the things you're supposed to be as a witness? They're not trained counselors, Mm -hmm. even like pastors and stuff. Most of them go to school or have like counseling degrees sometimes like Mm -hmm. witness elders don't. And they also really try and keep things inside. So they would also never said you should go get help. That was never said to me. Mm. Well, you're essentially being forced to ask for guidance from the same people who are causing the harm. Exactly. And like they they have um, publications that would say like, you know, an end to domestic violence and what you should do. And they would say like, you should go to the elders and get support. And so like I literally did all the things I was trained to do and obviously did not get the support that someone in that position should get. And I think that's why like part of the goal of the film I made was to a, like just get it out there that this is happening. Like right now, like it happened to me about 15 years, 20 years ago, but it's still, nothing has changed about how they run that organization. 
and the rules around this. And so, so like people should just know that and be like, <laughs> there is a way of dealing with this that could have been better. Like, I don't think that witnesses should not be allowed to exist. I think religions have the right to exist. Yeah. But like, why not have more fair representation? Like, I think about even how different it would have felt to me if there was a woman elder that I could go to to talk about what's happening to me. Like, I think it would have changed how I could have handled it a little bit. Or if they had a slightly different view of how marriage should be viewed, right? Like if their policies around abuse were like, hey, that's very serious. That mm -hmm. would obviously, you know, it literally could save people's lives. I mean, since I put out the album or, or the film, people have shared stories with me that are so heartbreaking about yeah. women who were way less lucky than me that I did eventually get out, um, who didn't get out, who like many women in those situations died. I mean, like, I think it's very serious. So I think that's why I wanted to tell the story. Wow. Thank you for yeah. telling it to us. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a very moving, important story to tell. Mm. Why? Why now? What was it about mm. this time in your life that you wanted to share this part of your past? Yeah, such a good question. You know, what's funny is when I was decided I wanted to make this, the why now question is like a question that like you ask as an artist around any project, yes. right? Like, why am I making this album now? Why am I writing this story now? Yeah. The film could have been about anything and I would have had to answer the why now question. Yes, that's um, true. <laughs> and so it was actually the um, my producer who helped me make this film named Mel Henniger. She was actually so useful in, to like ask me that question a thousand times, kind of. Like to the point of making me uncomfortable, kind of, where I was like, because my initial answer to that was like, I just need to. Like almost everything I've ever made as an artist, it's like I make the thing at that time because I needed to make that thing. Mm -hmm. And to me, that was kind of enough. But from an external perspective, I think to get such a complicated, nuanced story into an 11-minute documentary, mm. I did need to answer that very important why now. And it wasn't just like, why am I ready to tell the story? But why am I making a film about it? Yeah. And that's what really helped me come to the concept of writing the letters that mm. I talk about in the film is like, sure, I can be ready to reveal this thing about myself that I had built a whole career supposedly as a musician and storyteller and never talked about. Mm. <laughs> so one answer to why now was that like, I couldn't go on anymore. Like, like I don't talk too much about it in the film, but like I have spent 20 years dealing with like incredibly difficult post-traumatic symptoms like of many kinds like emotional physical all kinds of things and it has come in waves throughout my life and throughout my career of making albums and I know where those albums fall in that kind of journey but no one else does because I never talked about it mm -hmm. and so part of it was like I've just come this far in my journey where a I live in a different country and I'm physically safe enough to tell the story mm. I have grown up and like learned a lot about my own trauma and I've gotten a lot of help along the way. And so like I'm able to tell the story now. It's not as raw in my body. And then the third thing is I've learned so much. Like I went back to school as an adult and I did a master's degree that centered around women's literature. I learned language and words for what I had experienced. And I didn't know that before. Um, because also one other little detail is like higher education is discouraged among witnesses. Mm -hmm. And so 
I didn't go to university like as a normal university age kid. And so it's like I had the language for it. I suddenly saw the whole thing for what it was. And I realized, wait, I wasn't just like a loser who married someone who was terrible. I was a human being existing in this system that like it was kind of designed for this to happen. Yes. Mm. And it was super unfortunate. And I feel I actually feel a lot of forgiveness for the person who I was with while this was happening, because I think they also are a victim of that same system. Right. And like, yeah, so mostly like I had the language for it. I felt ready to be free of it. And I felt like it was blocking the way for like everything else I want to do in life both artistically and just as a human being where now I don't have to like carry the secret around, which I thought I was exerting power by redefining my life, starting over and pretending that didn't happen. But actually it was having power over me all the time. And I would never know how to like, you know, you meet someone new. It's like, how do you tell your life story? And be like, Oh, I would not want to. Or even like, I remember people would say like, call me a confessional songwriter. And I, it would just be like, I'm fucking lying every day of my life. And it just started to get like old. And so I was like, I don't want to anymore. Like, I'm just going to be what I am. And hopefully that will be a form of choice that I've never had before. Like, if you choose to tell your story and you choose to believe and you choose to build your life differently, that's freedom to me, finally, you know? Well, what you've done is incredibly brave for yourself incredibly powerful in the people it's going to help and you wrote a thousand letters and sent them to every every jehovah witness halls that's what you would say yeah organization pretty much every single kingdom hall in canada and then like like a bunch of them in the u.s um and then the two main headquarters in north america and not emails. These are written, written letters, yeah. sealed, mailed out, handwritten, addressed, stamps on mailbox. Like, yeah, yeah. And you know, like actually, the process of making those letters because I did handwrite every address. Yeah. Um, and that itself to me was one of the most healing things I've ever yeah. done. Like, yeah. it took me days and weeks, and like it was a really important part of the process of tangibly telling my story, yeah. kind of, you know. And and my understanding is that letter writing was ultimately your disassociation. So you had said earlier, yeah, on paper I can be divorced, but I still belong here. Or yeah. in their eyes, you still belong to this institution. But yeah. that is a way of separating. Is that true by the rules of the religion or was it yeah. symbolic for you? Um, I mean, it's both. Like, it yeah. was true by the rules of religion. I would have previously just be considered what's called an inactive witness. So I was still a witness, but I just wasn't around doing witness life. Right. But by writing the letter, I disassociated myself. I said, I am no longer a witness. And that was important to me because I could not stand the thought of my name belonging to an organization that treats women the way it does, that like fosters the type of patriarchal worldview that it does. Like, I just couldn't. Like, it was killing me. It was making me deeply angry it felt like a betrayal of myself so like yes the thousand letters i wish i could have written ten thousand. to be honest Mm -hmm. like literally the limitation was like how expensive stamps are like that was it (laughs) um but like that yes a thousand is kind of a symbolic number because it's just a lot (laughs) but also yes it officially severed my relationship with the organization and i like that like i needed that 
Yeah. Having watched the film, I know that that moment of just sliding them into the mailbox was Mm -hmm. huge for you. What about the feeling of publishing, releasing the film in a public forum? Yeah. Do you know what? It is not pretty. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I so appreciate you for saying that I'm brave. And I hope that it was. I hope I am brave. It is. It 100% is. I hope that's true. And also, like, I really hope it helps people. But I will, like, I also think people should know, like, it's actually really fucking hard doing this kind of thing. Like it's not, it's messy. It's not as if you feel courageous one day and then you're courageous every day. And like you have tons of, I had so much regret about it. The day after I filmed the documentary, like my talking part of the film, I woke up the next day. I felt like I was dying and I cried the entire day. And I was like, Oh my God, what have I done? So like, it's just been waves, you know, yeah. um, but since actually releasing it and starting to connect with people, hear other people's stories, then I'm like, I'm so grateful that I have the, you know, skill, money, platform, whatever privilege I have that I could do that. Like, so grateful because obviously not everyone does. And also, like, not everyone is an artistic person who's comfortable putting themselves in front of a camera. Like I've spent years of my life on stages and doing interviews. So it wasn't weird to me to do that. And so I'm grateful that I had that platform and um, I have no idea what's coming next, but I'm just like, I just feel a huge, like, thank you to like the people around me who like knew I was doing it and mm-hmm. supported me. Everyone who's watched it, everyone who connects with me. It's just like, I don't know. It's sort of amazing and beautiful. I feel like the ripple effect off it is something you can't see yourself because it, it's out there. And we've talked about our podcast even having that. We don't know who's always listening, who's yeah. tuning in, and who it could benefit. And those thousand letters you put out to your documentary that's online that people can watch, these are all things that are going to impact people in a positive way. And maybe in five years from now, there's this some person used to be involved in the faith becomes a lawyer and they decide let's I'm going after them. It could be anything, you know, like there's just the the power in that is, is endless and it's, it's out there now. Like that's, I hope so. Like, I think that's all you can do. I also think like, I, I don't think it's a responsibility of a survivor of any situation to tell their story. Like, I don't want people out there who've been through something to think that, it's like something they have to do because I don't think it's right for everyone, you Mm -hmm. know, like actually, and I don't think it's safe for everyone, but for me, because of who I am and because I am an artist and this is how I process my life for me, it was the right thing to do. And I think that it is about like, it is partially about me. Like I needed to do this for me, but it is much more about what you're saying of Mm -hmm. like, when you put any kind of work out into the world, you don't know what comes of it. Like, yeah. I don't know who listens to a song of mine on Spotify and, like, enjoys it or cries or whatever. Yeah. And, like, that's kind of the, that's the deal, you know? Like, you put it out there, you hope someone connects and you hope that, like, um, it helps someone. And when, like, when I play a show, for example, for music and someone comes up to me and is like, oh my God, I just love this song. It makes me think of this. Like to me, that's that's why we do it. Mm-hmm. And so I've been having some of those experiences around the film and it is like, that's so fulfilling and huge to me. Yeah. Um, 
it's great. But also, even if no one watched it and no one did it, I still know why I did it. Yes. And so I'm like kind of cool with that, too. You are a, a writer. You're writing short stories. You're a podcaster telling other people's stories. You're a musician telling stories in that form. What was it about this part of your life that you wanted to be captured in film form? Mm. Um, that's a really great question. Okay, for me, a big part of it has to do with the kind of deeper level damage that get do gets done when you're in an abusive relationship. So, like, for me, a huge part of the legacy of the abuse I experienced is extreme discomfort in my body and, like, my physical image in life. Like, how I exist in space okay. continues to be one of the, like, big hurdles that I'm working on. So, A, just, like, when you have physical abuse, like, there's a lot of stuff that happens with disassociating with your body, right, in order to survive that. Um, but then there's many other layers of just, like, being raised in a religion that kind of policed a woman's body constantly. And from the time I was a little kid, I was told I had to be careful how I dressed and I had to be careful how I acted. And like, so there's this discomfort in my physical body, which is, I think why like my favorite thing about music is that like, it is sound and you're like, you kind of make it in secret in a studio and like mm. no one sees you when you're doing that. And it's kind of my favorite part of it. So for me to like tell this story, I actually wanted to do the thing that's most uncomfortable for me, which is be seen physically. And I think that's why it ended up being the thing to start my work in sort of the visual form, because I think that to like show up in that way, it actually would have been easier for me to make a podcast about it or like something yeah. or just write about it. Um, I found it way easier. I've written so many essays that I haven't had published or tried to. Mm -hmm. And I don't and find it hard to be vulnerable when I'm writing. But to like sit here and like be on camera and say it was a huge challenge for me. And yeah, I don't know. I just thought ultimately that was like me showing up for myself and just kind of accepting some stuff and being like, yep, <laughs> here I am. You know, it's a it's a beautiful answer. And I, I I was expecting you almost to say like I was ready for a new art form and it mm. being about that it's it's such a deeper meaning and and I'm sure making film was like a an interesting or new creative <laughs> experience too but yeah yeah but it definitely was more about like just like listen if you're gonna rip the band-aid off like yes. just go for it mm. you know what I mean <laughs> did Mel ask you questions as you were going through filming and that's because we see your dialogue yes. I just wondered how those were prompted yeah um so we did a lot of prep on that she did she was in the room prompting me with questions mm -hmm. um I didn't see the questions or she did let me see the questions ahead of time, but I really didn't spend a lot of time looking at them because we had spent like six months together talking and planning and like trying to figure out how we were going to tell the story. And so she knew a lot about, she knows like far more about my story than is in the film. Mm -hmm. um, and so she kind of knew how to get me to speak about certain things. Um, we She didn't want to be on camera. She was like, this is your story. You know, it's not about me. And so we decided the format would be that I'd be like talking to the audience kind mm -hmm. of. But it was prompted. Um, there's obviously so much that I talked about that didn't go into the film. Mm -hmm. And I also made a conscious choice to not talk about the actual abuse itself, like mm -hmm. my experience. I was just like... I, I think that's a different film if I'm going to do that. Or I don't think I'd make that a film. I've talked about it in all of my songs. Just people don't really realize it. But if you mm. go back and listen now with that lens, you probably could hear it on every album, you know? So, yeah. 
And I know you're working on a new album. Is this yeah. story thematic of your new songs? Yeah. Um, thank you for asking about it because I'm super psyched about this new album. Um, mm. Yes and no. So 100% there are, um, there's one song in particular, it's called After Forgiveness, that is actually about what it sounds like. Like for me, telling the story has sort of been a later stage of my forgiveness for the people who perpetrated this stuff against me. Forgiveness of like everyone involved, my partner at the time, all the men who made it worse, um, even my family who like have always tried and loved me and tried to be great, but really kind of didn't help in a lot of like there's just a lot of people. And then, of course, myself, like mm. I had to like forgive myself for feeling, you know, a million things about how I ended up in that situation. Um, but the whole album is not about that. It's like this album is centered on the concept of how stripped back, like which songs can live without a ton of production on them. For years, I've been wanting to make a record that was very much close to like how I sing in my living room. And I've worked with our mutual friend, John Landry, John, yeah. <laughs> on two albums oh. he produced um, with and for me. Um, these incredible, like I was obsessed with like incredibly huge layered sounds. And it's funny because now when I look back, I realize like I really, so many of the songs on my last two records are actually about this in way more direct ways mm. but i wanted to bury it <laughs> and so they're like buried in metaphor and very like poetic lyrics and all this like rich beautiful super layered sound which i love mm. and i like loved making those albums with john um but this one is kind of the opposite in that it's like almost all acoustic there's some strings and some guitar and pianos but like there's no drums on the whole album which mm. is a weird choice Ooh. of mine um so it's it's very it's here. It's like made in a small room like this. It's like, I am here. I am speaking directly. All the songs are ones that could stand up with no instrumentation. And that's how they made the record. So, and it's a mix of like some older ones and then a bunch of brand new ones. Yeah. So it feels like the album that I could have only made now after going through the whole process of like the film and all the albums I made before. Well, every album is like a, summation of who you are at this point in time and what you've mm -hmm. gone through all your experiences so and true and yeah like it wouldn't have happened this album would be completely different if you didn't put out that film it'd still probably yeah. be an amazing album but just you would go down different paths because all our choices are influenced by the there are former creative choices and, yeah. and where that takes us and what we learn along the way. It's actually like from you saying that it makes me realize that I was kind of making them at the same time. So like I started, I filmed the film last December and I started making the album last December. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then I was like going into the studio and for me, because the studio and music to me is like, it's not a loaded experience. It's nothing but pure joy and creative freedom and love and like, great collaboration and like for me music is not loaded with anything like it only makes me happy to make it even if I'm writing the saddest song ever it only makes me happy and so yeah. it was almost this great anecdote because I found the film was really goddamn difficult to make mm. and so yeah. making the album at the same time was like this really nice trade-off and then of course they informed each other for sure have the creative projects help you reclaim a new identity at this juncture mm. in your life do you know what's weird about this is i never 
like I literally have been writing songs and doing creative writing and stuff since I was a little kid, even as a witness kid. So it's always been part of my identity that I never question. Mm -hmm. The challenge has been how to make it part of my life. And as a witness kid, um, the idea of being a touring musician was completely off the table. Mm -hmm. Like You had to make career choices that A, could make sure you could go to your three to four meetings a week. Obviously, you couldn't be a tour musician mm. and do that. Yeah, It was also like you would have to be out in, quote unquote, the world. So I used to play cafes like from the time I was like 14. I would I worked at a coffee shop and I would request the night off to play a show there. And I would like that is what I like, I recorded stuff in my bedroom all throughout my teenage years. I was always doing it. But there was no like, how could I actually do it? I had no idea. And so for me, what like when I. When I left the religion, the very first thing I did was make an album. And that's when I like moved mm. to Halifax and started my music career because it was the first time I could make it my life. But it was always to me, it was like never a surprise. It was always who I was. And have you made a, I want to say, have you made a life as an artist? Because that's that's just who you are. Like, I feel like just what you've said now. Yeah. Proves that. Is it what you do for your work, for a mm. living, for an income? Not now, but I did for a long time. Yeah. So I basically had almost a decade of like full time touring, writing grants, living off of my tours. Um, I would have like part time work on and off when I needed it in like off seasons. Um, when I stopped being able to do that was around the time when it became hard to do that. Like when the music industry shifted where you couldn't sell CDs anymore. Because I literally would like come back from my tours in the black, largely because of merch sales. Mm. Yeah. And also because I did quite a lot of like solo or just like s touring with other singer songwriters like Kim Wimpy. Um, and then I would go play in other people's bands and I would save all that money to make my next record. Mm. So like I had a system going for a long time. And then um, A, I physically burned out from it. And B, I was just like, I... I'm making it, but like not really getting anywhere. And mm. so that's when I went back to school. And basically ever since I went back to school, I've been more like doing other work to pay my bills. But weirdly, I'm doing more and better creative work. So the pressure has been taken off you. Yeah. I I talk to a lot of people about this because I have several friends who, you know, have jobs but are still making albums regularly. And like, I think partially because of my abuse experience, um, which involved like a significant amount of financial abuse, like all of money was taken from me at one point. Um, so like my financial independence is very much connected with a huge amount of like anxiety for me. And so having some form of stability had, especially as I got older, became like extremely important to me. And because I now have that, I feel freer yes. to make stuff. And I actually can make more because I can invest myself in it without having to rely always on a grant or not a grant, mm. you know? Like, so I'm very torn about it, though, because I spent many years being like, well, you're not a real artist unless you're paying your rent with it. And I, there's, how do I say this? I hugely respect people who can do that and have figured out ways to do that. I'm like... No one works harder than a working artist. Nobody. Mm. I can tell you, I have a full-time job now. It's not as hard. Like, mm. it's not. 
I can I can do it and still be an artist on the side. And I honestly think like no one works harder than that. Um, and so I have a huge respect for it. And I kind of like always hope that someday I'll figure out a way to be able to do that because now it's it's a race for time. Mm-hmm. Right. Like the time and energy that I have to show up to my work. How can I make sure I'm doing that enough and not giving it all to like an employer, you know, yeah. to capital C capitalism. <laughs> it's such a thank you for talking about this, because I, I find myself often like, I don't I don't know. I, I just I'm in a place where I don't know the answer for myself about mm-hmm. how I feel about this and where I stand, because I'm leaving a decade long good, you know, quote, good job yep. and pay and all of that. And I enjoy my life much more now Hmm. but there are parts of it primarily the financial parts of it and like you're saying working twice as hard to make a quarter of the money yeah uh, i'm well aware of this being my reality there's part of me that feels like a failure if i don't keep going a failure if i can't find a way for this to work Mm -hmm. a failure in calling myself an artist if i can't discover this solution but i i also know that like you're saying there's a certain freedom and well, you can remove that concern and still make make yeah. art. Like you, you get to be both. Yeah. I just I haven't figured out yet kind of where I fall or what I believe yet. So and I don't know like, if you went through some of this like middle, like undecided part of things. Yes. But I'd love to hear if that, this is um, relatable. I went through a huge middle. In fact, like the way that I'm talking now is probably only like a year and a half old of the way I'm thinking. Like yeah. part of it is the illusion of the artist that we have in society or in culture. Like, if you actually go and look at statistically in the world, how many people have made profound, incredible art that lasts, that we still take in, who are actually making a living from it, it's very tiny. Right. There's seven people. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like, even like the greatest writers, they had some other job or like the greatest painters were just they died poor. So, like, Mm -hmm. we we have a concept that success in art is success financially and like. It sounds rudimentarily rudimentary to say that's not true, but it truly isn't true. Like, it's not true. It's also the world we live in is insanely expensive. Like, even if I was full time touring like I was seven years ago, I could never live on it right now myself, Mm. especially as like an unpartnered person. So, like, there are like practical things in history. Art was always had patrons like, (laughs) you know, like people, artists have been dealing with this. Always. We are not unique in the struggle. And I think that like if you kind of view yourself as being a part of people who've had to choose between like how they're kind of made to live and how the world is forcing us to live, like that is also kind of part of the artist's life, I think. There's all these famous women writers who had to write from 4 a.m. to 6 a.m. before all the kids got up, who wrote some of the most important novels of our generation, Mm. you know? So like I think about it and I just try and take the weight of it off because ultimately you get to create whatever the hell life works for you, you know, and like it doesn't need to look like someone else's form of success. And as long as you're able to serve your craft and if that's what's important to you, then like you will always find a way to do it, even if you have to go work a nine to five. Yeah. The other thing that I always think is like, 
my life has been very tumultuous and I've lived several different lives already. And so nothing lasts forever. And so like, even if you had to go work for a year again or whatever, who cares? You will just make another choice, you know? Yes. You can always make another choice. That's what's cool about life. And the the impact or the emotional aspect, much like your film has offered for me is you can't measure that with a paycheck. Yeah. And I've not in the same way or form or story that you have, but in opportunities or moments we've created often with other people or on Mm. behalf of other people is the most purposeful thing that I can Mm. imagine doing with my life. So I'm I'm simultaneously like I don't really care about the money because this has nothing to do with that. Yeah. And this is far more important as a life experience. But I, I also am aware that there's there's, you know, at our root there's survival yeah. and <laughs> you like, have to pay a mortgage. Yeah. You have to like you have to get around. You have to eat food. Like that is okay, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think what I really respect about what the two of you do is like you really find super creative ways to keep making stuff and you're super collaborative. And I think the collaboration piece is key to like making a good life as an artist because it's almost like the social form of art. It's like, you know how we're like supposed to have social connections so we live longer. I also Mm -hmm. think it makes your art like live longer and your artistic inspiration and expression live longer. So I don't, I mean like we just need to take the like, we need to just take the judgment out of it mm-hmm. because what I discovered when I I'm a very late bloomer in a lot of ways because of the way that I was raised. So like I didn't get my first degree until I was like 35 and I have only recently become like financially stable and I'm now 41. So like that is like I've had to come to terms with all kinds of things that are like other people's timelines, other people's ways of doing things and just be like. This is what's working for me. And like my life is happening in 20 minute segments every day. It's Mm. not happening in like some future success that I'm chasing for, you know? And comparing ourselves to other people is just horrible. Yeah. And especially comparing ourselves, comparing ourselves to the curated version of someone on social media is even worse. So, well, comparison (laughs) is the thief of joy, they say. Mm. And it's, uh, this day and age, it's worse than ever because everyone's showcasing the best versions of yes. themselves, and we don't know about the struggles they're going through or what exactly. what is bothering them or holding them back. And then we we know what we're going through, and like we just assume, oh, their life is perfect, and they're making a living as a songwriter, whatever it may be. So, and lots of people who look like they're making a living as it aren't. Or they yeah. have like a partner who is taking care of the living yeah. or they have a, you know, wealthy family yeah. so this cushion that they can be risky. Like yeah. there's just so many pieces of it. So like it, to me, it's like not worth it. I'm just like, mm-hmm. I get it. Like, of course, I wish that I didn't have to show up to a nine to five because the way that my artistic brain works is like in a very different schedule. But like I also have other people that I want to help take care of in life. You know, like I have responsibilities that I want to meet. And so I just deal with that fact. I don't know. (laughs) Are you still close with your family and how have they received you doing this project? It's been a really tough part of this year, actually, is like it has caused the fact. So my family was very supportive of me through 
the experience of the abuse and even supportive of my decision to divorce kind of against the rules. My Honestly, my parents allowed me to come back to Canada and live with them, which is really what helped me restart my life. Um, but when I made the film and when I called it apostate, mm. um, it caused big problems. So I have ongoing conflict with my mom. We're definitely not as close as we were before. I have family that I now haven't spoken to for a year. Well, they haven't spoken to me. So like that is it's yeah, it was a really hard part of the grief. It was the grief part is when I told them I was doing this. And when I shared the letter that I wrote with them there, you know, it was not good. Um, it's not considered it's not considered a good thing to publicize negative things about the organization. Yeah. They weren't, it has nothing to do with the abuse side. Like it's really important for me to like say that they're like, they're very supportive of that, but they are not supportive of like speaking against the organization. And unfortunately they just don't see it as I see it. Um, mostly because they're still in it. Mm -hmm. deeply deeply in it that yeah. it, it feels like it makes sense yeah although i'm sure it's of course very difficult yeah i mean it's super sad to me like family is like extremely important but it's been a big part of my kind of growing up is being like if i'm choosing to do this this is one of the consequences and i just hope for the future that we'll kind of come back together in time yeah what do you see happening in your future what are you wishing for what are you dreaming about Oh my God, that's a beautiful question. <laughs> um, one of my biggest dreams is kind of speaks to that um, idea of getting comfortable in my own body again. So whatever that means um, for me, like if, if we're talking about New Year's resolutions, it's around just like doing things that help me be physically present and like feel um, safe in like my body in this mm -hmm. world, like here and now, not spending as much time in my head and worrying about the future. Um, it's very connected to like all overall healing. And as far as art, I'm so excited to put out my album. I'm planning to book some more shows for this upcoming year and to um, put out the new music. Super psyched for that. When does the album come out? Um, I'm shooting for the first single to be in March and then yeah. it will kind of like, you know, peter out <laughs> by little by little yeah. over the next couple months. So it's, it's going into mastering right now. So it's technically pretty much done. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just making more things. Like I have, I did so much creative work last year. And so there's just a lot of like deciding which thing I want to invest in next. Is it another short film? I'd really love to make a narrative short film. And I really want to get into actually publishing some more writing as well. Incredible. So we'll yeah. Wow. What a force. Yeah, you're an amazing person. <laughs> oh my gosh, guys. Thank you. Just so <laughs> so multi-talented and um yeah, I, I really appreciate your honesty today, Carmel. And I it takes a lot of courage to to put yourself out there in this way. But I think knowing even us who can't share your story are benefiting from this conversation. So mm -hmm. like you had said earlier, Mike, you have no idea the reach that yeah. sometimes these things have. And that's in part the motivation. But just we're really proud of you. Congratulations for just taking this step in your life and going forward and, and mm. just representing what you believe in. That's huge. Thank you. And remember every day that you truly are brave doing this. Like that's not even in question that is that's true and you're it's you're a powerful person who's making change in the world 
That's so amazing. This conversation has been just like so freaking easy. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You're so good at you this. You might be here a little longer because <laughs> yeah. we do have more questions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the off-air question yeah. time. So Begins. where should we send folks to? We'll put the links to your work in our show notes as always. But is there somewhere that we can, uh, that you'd like to share that we can point our, yeah. our listeners to? Absolutely. So carmelmichael.com just has like all the things. You can go, you'll find my music and a link to my film there. You can actually watch the film. You can mm-hmm. read the letter and then connect with me on instagram at apostate film and at carmel michael and that's kind of where i share more of the story on my instagram at apostate film and so you kind of like can get more nuance and connect with other folks who's had similar experiences wonderful thank uh, you yeah, thanks so much for for being so open and yes yeah, sharing everything about uh, today it was amazing awesome yeah. thank you guys so much cheers cheers Take me at the riverbank Fly me to safety now Hunter on the ridge with an arrow lit Tell them to sink it down In the deepest water Nobody holds me Nobody holds me like you do Broken bone.